Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Deuteronomy number, uh, chapter number 6, we're going to begin reading in verse 4. And the word of the Lord declares, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with, Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. This is the word of the Lord. The Puritan minister and author John Flavel once wrote, if you neglect to instruct your children in the way of holiness, will the devil neglect to instruct them in the way of wickedness? No. If you will not teach them to pray, he will to curse, swear, and lie. If ground be uncultivated, weeds will spring. Well, this morning we're in part four of our series titled Saving a Generation. In this series, we've been talking uh, about um, having... We've been talking about these, this current uh, generation and their spiritual state. Um, the generation known as Generation Z, which is all the children born between 1999 and 2015. And what we discovered is that even though that 75% of Americans proclaim uh, to have faith in Christ, 31% of Americans actually practice their faith, and 18% of Americans actually have a, a worldview that's framed by the Bible. But even more concerning is that Generation Z is rejecting faith at a rate double that of every previous generation. 6% of all other generations profess, profess to be atheists, while 13% of Generation Z is claiming to have no faith in God at all. And in this series, we've been talking about a number of factors that have contributed to this. Like, uh, number one, the church growth movement, or the idea that it's all about growth in numbers in the church rather than discipleship and doctrine. Number two, materialistic philosophy, the idea that all there is is really the material world and universe. Number three, the promotion of anti-authoritarian attitudes. We have trained our children to respect no one. And number four, the digital age. If there's anything that's really changed the world, it is that. Technology and the digital age have changed the world our kids grow up in. And we talked at great length about all of this in part one. And as we have been talking about what we need to, we've been talking about what we need to do. Right? How do we get involved to help change and rescue this generation? How do we save this generation and subsequent generations? And what we talked about is, is we need to be um, involved in doing what God or Christ has called us to do, which is to make disciples. And the best place for us to begin making disciples is right here at home in our inner circle of our greatest influence. We need to make disciples of our children and of our spouses and our parents and our neighbors and our co-workers and our community members. And yes, we need to make disciples of the nations, but we especially need to make sure we take the time to make disciples at home. And as we said, the foundation for all that we do is the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for individuals and entire generations, which means we need to individually master the gospel. We need to know it. We need to be able to share it, and we need to live out the gospel. And in the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about one of the most important ways to live out the gospel, um, and that is to stand up for uh, and defend marriage or biblical marriage, both inside of it and outside of marriage. And the reason for that is because marriage is a living picture, a living model of the gospel. It's a living picture of the relationship of Christ and his church. And more than that, marriage is not only a God-ordained, supernatural, unbreakable union between a man and a woman. It is also the foundry out of which we forge disciples. Because the best place of greatest influence that you have is your immediate family. Now, if you've missed any part of the last three weeks that's a very, very quick review of the conversation that we've been having. And so it might feel like that you have walked into the middle of a conversation, and kind of you have, right? But, but, but the good news is I'm here to help. 
There's a couple things we've done for you. First of all, there is a sheet in your notes that have covered the slides that, that we have just reviewed. Uh, also, all three of the, the, uh, the messages in this series so far have already been uploaded. And when you get an opportunity, you can listen to those. And all of what we're going to talk about will make more sense and have a, a better context. But today, I really want to deal with and talk about another factor that's contributing to the decline of the Christian faith in the world around us. And... Uh, and, and so, and, and, and we need to talk about that and what we need to do about that. And this factor is really something related to how we are raising children in the world today, right? And, and you may not realize this, but Generation Z, this generation um, is also called the helicopter generation. And it's not because they all ride in helicopters, right? The reason why we call this the helicopter generation has, actually has nothing to do with the children of this generation themselves, per se. The reason why they're called the helicopter generation is because of the parents of those children. They are called helicopter parents. Now you might wonder what a helicopter parent is, but a helicopter parent is someone who pays extreme close attention to their child's experiences and activities and problems, particularly at school. Helicopter parents are so named because they're like helicopters, always hovering overhead, always overseeing every tiny little detail of their child's life, right? And you know what I'm talking about, right? That overprotecting, overbearing, never lets, my kid never does anything wrong ever. I'm going to wrap my kids up in bubble wrap kind of parenting, right? The, the parent that won't let their child grow up, the kind of parent that won't let their child fail at anything, the, the, the parents who will go to school and get up in the teacher's face, right? When the child isn't selected for an award that they think that they deserve, or they didn't get a grade that they think that they should have, the parents who, who calls out the coach in the middle of a, of a baseball game because of playing time issues, the kind of parent that gets upset when another kid gets a trophy and their child doesn't get one, the parent who can't watch their child struggle and do anything. And so because of that, the child is never really made to do any chores or, or take responsibilities because mom and dad is always doing everything for them. Mom and dad are always wanting to make them happy and never let their feelers ever get hurt or damaged in any way. And so, so these children grow up really protected and coddled in their life. Right? This is really actually the defining characteristic of this generation, because we, we, have, we have parents who are monitoring every activity and every little thing the child does. And we're there for everything, every award and every little boo-boo and every sniffle and every, every game and program and scrap of paper and, and tear and, and all of those things. And, and we're going to make sure that they grow up healthy and happy and, and we're going to protect them from every little thing that the world throws at them. And, and don't get me wrong, this is not a criticism, all right, because I think we're all guilty of this, you know, on, on some level that all of us have a little bit of this in us. I know that Kim and I can be a little overprotective when, when it comes to our kids. In fact, my, my son Carson's 12 years old. He's five foot nine, about 210 pounds, and he can handle himself. Right. But my wife will hardly let him go anywhere by himself at all because she is afraid someone's going to steal him. I'm like him. You've, you've seen him, Right. Like somebody's going to grab him and carry him off. I don't think that's going to happen, right? We're, we're, we're a bit overprotective. I mean, he's as big as, as some grown men, right? We can be a little overprotective. And so I understand, right? And I'm not criticizing here, right? I mean, we all have this tendency. But this isn't to say that helicopter parenting is always good, right? Because it's obviously not. It's not good for us to always overprotect and overindulge our children. But that's really not the point, Right? That's not where we're going. The point is, is that most parents actually end up as helicopter parents because they love their kids. That's really the root of it. They, they love their kids. They want them to be happy, and that's a good thing. They want their kids to be fulfilled. They want their kids to, to be healthy and safe. Those are really, really good things. And, and because parents want these things for their kids, they hover around looking for ways to protect their children. And so they <clears throat> make sure that, they, that their kids are playing where they can see them play. Right? They make sure that they don't come in contact with the allergens that could cause them to have an allergic reaction. They give their children cell phones so you can always be in contact with them. They, they, they teach their kids the buddy system and don't talk to strangers. And they make sure that their kids are always in possession of a bottle of water so they don't you know, dehydrate out here in the desert somehow. Right? They, they do this to protect their children. They love their kids. But, but there's something that really puzzles me about all of this. 
You see, we as parents will do everything we can do to keep our children away from danger. Right? We, we, we check the sex offender registry. and We know where all the threats are. I mean, we use the information because we'd never let our children hang out on a street or close to a house where there's a registered you know, child sex offender. I mean, we we're going to protect our children that way. We don't let our children run around and play on the freeway. We don't let our children play Russian roulette with grandpa's old revolver. We don't let our children um, you know, play, with, play at the sewer ponds. Right? We don't let our children run around with a butter knife, let them stick it into the outlets around the house. Right? We intrinsically desire to protect our kids. And because of that, we do things to protect them. And one of the things that we do is we limit their choices. No, you cannot swim in shark-infested waters. That is not a choice. No, you can't stand on that edge of that 500-foot cliff. It's not a choice. No, you cannot eat Tide Pods. Okay? No, you can't set off that firework in your room. No, you can't eat a half gallon ice cream in one sitting before dinner. No, you can't jump out of the truck no matter how cool you think it's going to look while it's moving. No, you cannot let your best friend shoot the apple off your head with an arrow. Right? We as parents don't give our children the right to make certain choices. In order to protect them, there are some choices we don't let them make. They don't get to make those decisions. We limit you know, the, the, the decisions they make. And it's not limited to just immediate physical harm. There are other things that we don't let them have choices over. Like, no, you can't quit school in the third grade. It's just not an option for you, right? No, your girlfriend cannot live in your house and sleep in your bed. That's just not going to ever happen, right? No, you and your friends cannot drive to Los Angeles even though that you're 15 and a half years old by yourselves. No, you cannot have unlimited access to my credit card, Right? In order to protect our children, there are things, lots of things, that we don't give them a choice in. And rightfully so. There are things that, lots of things that our children should have no choice over. There are lots of choices our children have no business making while they are still children. But what puzzles me, what really gives me pause, is we will not let our children have choices in all these other areas, but yet we are willing to give our children a choice, we're willing to let them decide for themselves probably the most important issue they will ever face. We will let our children decide about something that's actually infinitely more important than their physical safety. We will let them decide about things that are potentially have more consequential and have far and away more consequences and more de- dangerous and devastating than all these other things combined. We allow our children to decide for themselves something that can absolutely destroy their lives forever. And many parents think that it's actually the right thing to do. To give them a choice. To, to, you know, they, they, they believe that it's the educated thing to do to give them this choice. That it's a moral thing to do. It's certainly the culturally accepted thing to do. But let me tell you, I just... And I don't want to be overdramatic here, but, but it's absolutely insane... If you really think about it, if you really understand the ramifications of the decision that we give our kids, you know, that, that, we, that we're crazy to allow our children to decide this for themselves. But parents do it all the time. Parents let their kids decide all the time. They let their young kids, their teenage kids, their, their preteen kids decide for themselves. And you know what this decision is that, that we allow these children to make? You know, what's so potentially devastating, what is so incredibly important Right? The decision that, that our children make, that, that we allow them to make, well, it's, we let our children make up their own minds about faith. We let our children decide whether or not they're interested while they're children in faith. We let our children decide if they want to come to church. We let our children decide if they want to go to youth group. We let our children decide if they want to read the Bible. We let them decide if they want to learn about the Christian faith or not. That they decide for themselves. Right? We allow them to decide this at all ages. We let them decide whether or not they're interested in the Christian faith at all. Whether or not Christianity is the thing for them or not. Now you might say, well, of course, of course I do. I mean, faith is a choice. And everybody needs to make that choice for themselves. And I don't think that we, we should make our kids go to church. I, I, you know, I want to make, make sure my child makes up their own mind. That, that it needs to be their own decision. And on some level, you're, you're right. Everyone needs to make the decision for themselves because everybody's responsible to choose God or to not choose him. As the old saying goes, God does not have grandchildren. 
He only has children. Every person needs to, to, to choose to follow Christ or not. Right? And, and this isn't something that, that you can fake. Either you have faith or you don't have faith. So yes, everybody needs to choose. Right? But hear me on this. Just because your adult child has the legal right to drink a half a pint of whiskey every single day doesn't mean that we teach your 10-year-old that it's okay and we get them a, a head start on that. Just because your adult daughter has the legal right to kill her child in the womb doesn't mean that we teach abortion is a neutral uh, moral issue and that God is okay with it. Just because your child has the legal right to have an affair, there's, 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 nothing, legally, there's nothing legally wrong with it. Just because they can have an affair when they're an adult doesn't mean we train them up as children to, to, to believe that affairs are really just normal and, and, and just part of life. And by the same token, just because a person can legally reject their faith in Christ when they're adults doesn't mean that we should teach our children that faith in God is simply a personal choice like your political opinions, because it's not. In fact, let me just put this in perspective, because I hear this a lot. I hear this all the time. I hear, you know, I just, I just want to give my child the ability to choose for themselves whether or not they're going to have faith. Let me, let me tell you what that really means. They might not mean it this way, but this is intrinsically what it means. Because if you're a parent who is a Christian, if you're truly a born-again Christian, you have repented and you have, you've put your faith in Christ. Right? If you have faith in Jesus, you have faith because of a reason. Right? Your faith in God isn't about him giving you a better life. Your faith in God is not about him making you a more moral and better person. Your faith in God is not about you feeling more fulfilled and connected to the rest of humanity. Your faith in Christ has a specific reason for it. And the reason is, is you need a savior. You need to be rescued. That is why you have faith. You have faith because Jesus did something for you that you could not do for yourself. He died on the cross. He was tortured and he suffered unimaginably on a cross, slowly suffocating to death over a period of hours. And worse than that, and more than that, God the Father, while his sin, while, while Jesus is, was, was, was bearing your sin, God the Father turned his back on him, right? And God the Father and the God the Son, for the first time in all eternity, had a, had a, had a break in fellowship. Right? Prompting Jesus to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christian, he didn't do that so that you could be a better person. He didn't do that so you could have more wealth than you could ever imagine. He didn't do that so you could just feel better about who you are as a human being. Christ died on the cross as payment for your sins. The Bible tells us that very clearly. Christ died for sin and according to scripture. He was delivered up for trespasses. Christ died on the cross to pay for sins. Why? Why did Christ have to pay for your sins? Because you were dead in your sins. You were dead in your trespasses. You were unable to have a relationship with God because your sins existed. Because you had sin in your life. The wrath of God abided on you. Because of our sin, right? we were enemies of of a holy and righteous God. Because of our sin, we stood condemned before God, which means we deserved an eternity separated from him. We had an eternity of darkness, an eternity of misery and pain, eternity known as hell. That's what awaited us when we were in our sin. It was because of our sin that Christ died. Because, because we couldn't make up for our sin. The justice of God demanded payment of our sins. And it was a payment that you and I frankly couldn't pay. It was a payment that we had no ability to pay. That is why Christ died on the cross, is to pay that penalty. That's why we turn to him in faith. We, we were hopelessly lost. We cannot lose sight of this. We were hopelessly lost in sin. And Jesus is the only way to be saved. And we turn to Christ in faith because we needed to be rescued. If you're a Christian... Truly a Christian. That's why you have faith. And you know, those who don't have faith are not rescued. Those who do not have faith are not saved. Those who do not have faith in Christ will face 
God one day when they die and they will be judged and they will go to hell. They will go to hell. And, and, and I know we do not like to hear that. We don't like to talk about that. This is a subject that, that people get really upset about. This is a subject that makes people really turned off. Right? I mean, I know many people would rather me set up here, stand up here and teach eight ways to have a better life in Christ. Right? But it's the truth. Those who are not in Christ, those who do not have faith in Christ will go to hell. End of story. And the reason why we have faith is because, because we want to be rescued from the sin and the hell that awaits us. You have faith in Christ because you see the beauty of God and you want to spend eternity in his presence rather than an eternity away from him. And the only way to be in the presence of God is to trust Christ's finished work on the cross for your sin. Otherwise, you're going to hell. And I know how painful this is to think about. I know, again, we in our American culture don't want to talk about, but that's what we need to understand. And so when I, when, when, when I say, I, I want, to, want my child to decide for himself whether they have faith or not, right? when I say that I want my child to make up their mind about religion and what they want to follow, when I say I want my child to choose whether or not to follow God, what they're saying is, I want my child to decide for themselves whether or not they want to go to hell. That is the root of what we're saying. I want my child to decide whether or not they want to spend eternity in hell or not. Because that's what it means. That's what the choice is. It's not a choice of religions. It's not a choice of personal philosophies. It's a choice of eternity. Your children, if they choose Christ, will, if they do not choose Christ, they will spend eternity in hell. Do we really understand that? That's the choice that they're making. And, 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 and the same parents who, who let their child decide that would never, ever, ever let their child decide whether or not they want to go to school. Because that's too important of a decision for them to make. But we're not talking about something that affects their life. We're talking about eternity. And so let me be completely honest. Your children are not qualified to make that choice. Your children are not qualified to make that decision. They're not qualified to decide for themselves at this point in their lives. Now, before you get upset with me, right? There's, there, there are a lot of things that, that we don't let our children decide before they're qualified to make those decisions. There are lots of things we don't let our children decide until they get much older. We don't let our children, 12-year-old children decide whether or not they want to have a romantic relationship with someone that's 25 years old. They just don't get that choice. Why? Because they're not qualified. They are not qualified to make that decision. We don't let our five-year-old children decide what their diet consists of. Why? Because they're certainly not qualified. They'll eat cake and ice cream and cookies and candy all the time. We don't let our nine-year-old children decide whether or not that, that they should be looking at pornography. Why? Because they're not qualified for that. They're mentally not prepared for that. They're emotionally and spiritually not prepared for that. They're not qualified to make that decision. We have to make choices for them until they become adults. Then, whether we like it or not, they get to make that decision. Parents, if we are believers, we have no business giving our children a choice in this matter. We should not say, I want my child to decide for themselves as, as if, you know, if somehow, some way they're going to figure out how to follow Christ on their own. Rather, what we need to say is, I want my child to accept Christ and spend eternity in heaven with me. And I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure my, my children accept that. I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that it happens. Because that's what we're supposed to do with our children. We're supposed to help them to make good decisions when they're adults. We're supposed to train them up and teach them and, and limit their options until they become old enough to make those choices. Our job is to help them to grow and to make sure that they can make that choice. And, 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 and it's the same with this. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, parents, let your children choose who they're going to worship. 
Nowhere do you find it say, parents, give your children a choice and who their God will be. Nowhere in the Bible will you find it say, parents, right? You know, you, you, your, your faith is just a personal choice. So you just need to give room for your kids to weigh all the options and decide for themselves. That's not what the Bible says at all. In fact, let's look at the text again. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 1. And before we jump in too far, let me just give you the context here. Because the context really is actually fitting, I think. This, this is the book of Deuteronomy, and it's called Deuteronomy because it means second law. Deutero means second, nomi means law. And the reason why it's, it's called the second law, it's not because it was another law that's given. It's just the second time the law itself was given, right? It's not another law. It's the second time that they gave the law to the people. And the reason why it's the second time they gave the law to the people is because, because right now the Israelites are once again standing on the edge of the promised land, and they're finally about to take possession of it. And this is a brand new generation, This is a newer generation because the previous generation died in the wilderness. They had their opportunity to go in the promised land and they didn't follow God. They didn't follow his commandments. And so God turned them away and they all died in the desert. And so Moses is talking to and training up a new generation of followers so that they will be faithful to follow God. And he says, now this is the commandment, the the statutes and the rules that the Lord, your God commanded me to teach you that you may Do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days will be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. And so this te- in this text, Moses is saying to this next generation, here's all the commandments of the Lord, and I'm, I'm teaching you these things so that you can be blessed and take possession of the land, and I'm teaching you these things so that you will follow God faithfully, and not just you, but your children too. And then he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. He says, there's only one God, Yahweh. And then Moses then gives us the greatest commandment that follows that and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your might. That's the greatest commandment that we find in the New Testament. When you hear Jesus say that, this is what he's quoting right here. That you're to love the Lord your God with everything you are and all that you have. That that loving God is the supreme commandment. And then he says, and these words I command to you, shall be on your heart. And notice what he says. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. I really want you to notice this. Moses does not say, learn these commands and follow God with all your heart and then give your children a choice whether or not they want to follow me or not. He doesn't say, you know, everybody needs to decide for themselves. And so you really shouldn't push your religious views on your children. I mean, everyone needs to make up their own mind. So you really shouldn't fill their heads with your religious beliefs. That is not what he says. He says, he says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. And understand, he didn't say just teach them. He says, teach them diligently. And this is important because this whole phrase to teach your children diligently actually comes from a single word that has the root word which is uh, shenan. Shenan is the, the Hebrew word. And it certainly means to teach diligently, but this word also in other contexts means, it means to sharpen an arrow. It means, it means to cut and, and pierce. It means to, in essence, to refine. You see, this is not simply a passive teaching. This is transformational kind of Teaching. In fact, the NIV actually renders it in a way that, that, that kind of gives you a little bit more of a picture. The, the NIV says, impress them on your children. You're to impress them on your children. Like you impress like clay into a mold. Right? You're to push your, these teachings into your children. And so the idea is you don't just teach the statutes of your faith. You don't just explain to them what the tenets of your faith are, and what the rules are. You actually take the teachings of your, of your faith and you actually push them and massage them into your children. You're to sharpen your children by these teachings. You're, these teachings are actually to shape your children. 
You teach your faith in a way that should transform who they are. That's what he's saying. Now notice that this is different compared to what so many people say. Moses is saying you should impress these truths into your children. You should teach them diligently. Where most people say is, I'm just going to simply give all my kids the information and I'm going to let my child decide for themselves. I think my kid needs to make up their own mind. In fact, there are a lot of people who, who say that it's actually wrong for you to impress your faith upon your children. That it's wrong to teach your children about faith. And that, that, that to say that your faith is the truth. That it's wrong to teach your children about your faith with the intention of converting them. That it's wrong for you to make a point to build your child's life around your faith. So they don't have a chance to grow up without your faith. So they can't figure it out by the, for themselves later on. In fact, there are a growing number of people who hold this view. But understand this attitude does not come from God. This is not an attitude that comes from the Bible. It's, it's, it's an attitude that originally comes from atheists and agnostics. They're the ones who actually you know, think that children shouldn't ever be exposed to religion until they grow up so they can make up the choice for themselves when they get older. In fact, I read a quote recently by an atheist who's lobbying to make this law. He says, and I quote, All countries around the world have a minimum age for people to have the right to vote. My understanding of this rule is that young people generally are not mature enough. It's funny he uses this logic. My understanding is that, 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 that young people are generally not mature enough to make a decision uh, uh, from a decision-making standpoint to decide on crucial topics in politics and electing a candidate to the government. If this be so, then shouldn't we also set a minimum age for people to choose a religious faith to follow? keeping aside the fact that religion is a fallacy and we're better off without it, I think the first step towards that would be to stop indoctrinating our children in religious faith. I feel that government should prevent children from being brought up in a faith. Instead, let them grow up to a certain age. Then they can choose to be a part of a religion or whatever. You see, this idea that we just simply let our children decide about faith has its origins in people who don't want your children to have faith. Over and over again, I read, I've read articles you know, studying up for this, and, and, and I re- read parents saying, I just don't think you should teach your t- kids about faith until they get older. And one, one thing they all had in common is none of them have faith. And this attitude is not just affecting people in our culture. It's affecting the church. I mean, we, 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 we have people in the church who say, you know what? Faith is a really personal thing, and so I just think I'm just going to let my kids make up their own minds about it. But notice, the Bible doesn't make this argument or statement. The Bible tells us something completely different. We are instructed by Moses to teach our children diligently. Right? And not just, and that's not all. Not, that's not just the only place. Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Isaiah 54, 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. God makes it clear through Moses that we're to diligently, deliberately, and actively teach our children about faith. Why? Because if you won't... The world will. The world will teach your children. If you won't teach your children, the devil will teach your children. See, we don't live in a sterile laboratory environment where where ideas and truths are delivered to your children at home in written reports where your children diligently study them and apply the very best wisdom and reasoning and logic, making logical choices. That's not how it works. The moment your child comes out of his or her her mother's womb, they are bombarded with sensory information. The moment they come out, even while they're in the womb, sights, sounds, smells, touch, and taste, right? Their little brains are processing information all the time, as fast as it can come in, categorizing it, cataloging it, organizing it, right? And they absorb information like a sponge, and guess what? They don't come with a natural filter built in to tell them good information from bad information. It's all information. And let me be even more blunt. The world is even trying to get inside your child's head. The world wants to influence your child's thinking. That's why 
They want your kids in school by age five. That's why the United, the United Kingdom wants to make it mandatory for kids to be in school by the age of three. The state wants to begin influencing and shaping your children as early as they can because they can have the greatest amount of influence and impact on them at the earliest possible ages. They don't wait for college to start before they start trying to indoctrinate your children. They begin as early as possible. And it's not just the government, it's companies too, right? Companies that want to sell you stuff. If they can influence your children to spend, influence your children to want something, then you're going to spend the money. Right? There are products probably in your household that you would not have otherwise if it wasn't for your kids. And it's the same with political organizations and activist groups. They're trying to teach your children younger and younger and younger and younger. The world is already teaching your children. It is already actively in every possible way teaching and trying to train up your, your children. They're t- it's teaching them about things that you probably don't even talk about The world's teaching our children through school and social media and through the movies and through television and music and apps on their their phone. The world and the enemy want to share and shape your child before you get a chance to. The world is not waiting for your children to grow up to make decisions. That's why Moses says to teach your children diligently because if we don't, someone else will. And so he says, these, he says, teach these things diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and you shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Or in other words, you should be continually teaching your children about your faith. You see, the the topic of faith is never meant to be just a a once-a-week discussion. It's not supposed to be a a once-a-week event. It's supposed to be an everyday thing, an every-event thing, an every-opportunity thing. You should be teaching your children about faith at every opportunity, at every turn. That means at home, on the way to school, when you go to the baseball game, when you have dinner, when you're having disciplined moments, when they've done something wrong. We should continually be teaching our children the gospel. We should be continually talking to them about our faith. And notice, it it doesn't say, parents, you should have your youth pastor, your Sunday school teacher, teach these things diligently to your children. It says that you, parents, are to teach them to your children. It says you're the ones, you're the ones to teach them diligently. Why? Because you're the ones that have the most influence. You're the ones who are there with them when they wake up. You're the ones who are there with them when they go to bed. You're the ones who, who, who are there when they need to go to urgent care. You're, you're the ones that, that, that have the most meaningful contact with them, even though they might make you think that, that you're not that important to them, especially when they're teenagers. But they look to you. They lean on you. They, they, they trust in you. And you're the greatest influence in their lives of all the other people around them. And this is especially true of dads, as we talked about last week. You by far are the greatest influence in your children when it comes to faith, the greatest determining factor whether your children will have faith. And so you need to be there to teach them. Mom and dad, you need to diligently, at every opportunity, be teaching your children, which means regularly and intentionally, which means you need to be continually shaping your children for their faith. Because if you don't, the world will. Now you might say, well, all right, then I get it. I understand I need to do something and take responsibility and rise to the occasion, but I, don't, I have no idea how. Right? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a preacher. I'm not sure how to shape my children for their faith. I certainly don't feel qualified. I don't, I don't even like, I'm not even that good about reading the Bible myself. So how am I going to, 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 to do this? Well, let me tell you. You can absolutely do this. You don't need a theology degree. You don't need any specialized training. You just simply need to commit to discipling your children, which means you need to show them how to follow Christ. And, and let me just show you how this, what this looks like. First thing you need to understand is that all the words that you say to your children are meaningless unless you back them up with your actions. 
your children will more attention pay to what you do than what you say. So you need to lead your children by example, which means you need to regularly take your own walk with Christ seriously. If you want to influence your kids for Christ, then you have to be serious in your own walk with Christ. Your children need to see you in church regularly. They need to see you worshiping the Lord. They need to see you reading the word. They need to see you in prayer. They need to see you serving the Lord. They need to see you and your faith in action. You're the greatest living example in their lives. What you do will influence them for the rest of their lives. So lead by example. Second, you need to continually preach the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And any action that you do, anything that you do will be to them empty religious activity until your children begin to understand and receive the gospel. Then it will begin to make sense to them. You must always remind your children the gospel. You must always tell them about the gospel. Because remember, just because a kid makes a profession of faith when they're a child doesn't mean they actually were regenerated and saved. doesn't mean that they actually really, truly had a conversion experience. They still might be lost. So always, 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 always preach the gospel to your children, which means when they do something wrong, talk with them about sin and where that comes from. And when you forgive them, explain to them the, 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 the riches of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. And when they face consequences because of their actions, explain to them, how those consequences really ultimately are taken care of in Christ because of his sacrifice. Preach the gospel continually to your family. Never, ever, ever let up on it. Make sure you see Christ transform them. Make sure you see the evidence of the gospel in their own faith. And the next, we need to pray with your children on a regular basis. You see, your children need to see that talking to God is a normal, everyday thing to do. One of the weirdest things is, is in the youth group, I'll talk to kids about praying, and they're like, yeah, I'm not even sure how to pray. It's a basic thing. These kids are teenagers. I've been praying since I was a little kid, even before I was a Christian. I could pray. We need to teach our children how to pray, that it's a normal thing. They need to also see that there's power in prayer. They need to see that it's an integral part of our faith, Right? So take time to pray with your family and not just over meals, right? That's, that's the gimme one, right? Pray for the road trip before you go. Pray for the test that they're going to have at school. Pray for, for the game ahead of time and everybody be safe. Pray for them and, and, and their friends and pray over their problems and anxieties. Pray for your family every day and then insist that your child is in the world. Word, not world, but word. That's my dyslexia. Thank you. Insist that your child read the word and, and, and hear me, okay? This is a non-negotiable. There are, kid, there are things in your house that are just not negotiable. This should be one of them, right? You are the parent. You get to decide. They don't, right? So don't accept excuses. Don't let them off the hook. Your child needs to be in the word every day, every day, every day, every day. They need to get in the habit of reading and listening to the word Every day. Because the word is alive and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. It will impact their lives. It will change them if you expose them to it. So draw the line in the sand and insist that, you know, that come what may, they will be in the word. I mean, this is what we've done with our kids. Right? I ask. You can ask my kids. I ask them every day. Did you read today? Did you read today? Did you read today? And so they finally decided to cut me off on that, and they just decided to do it. Right? And my kids now are starting to read and listen to the word every day at different things. Carson reads with his breakfast. McKaylee reads while she's putting on her makeup. You know, I mean, she's, she's listening to the word being, being read to her while they're doing these things. Every day, the word is, 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 is in their lives. And so we need to help our children to make this a habit. Now it's a habit for them. They don't even think about it anymore. It's just part of their daily routine. And the next, talk with your family regularly about faith. Now, this might seem kind of redundant. Because I've already told you to be preaching the gospel to your, your family, but this is not the same thing, right? Talking to your faith, talking to your family about their faith is a different thing. This is a conversation. It's a dialogue. It's a two-way street. The point of talking to your family about faith is to reinforce what your children have learned and also to gauge where, you, where they are in the process of spiritual maturity. It's an ongoing conversation, right? 
where you can talk to your kids about what they're learning from the word. You can talk to them about how they see God moving and working in the world. You can talk with them about how to share faith with their friends. You can talk with them about problems that they're facing and how to solve them in light of the word and doing things that are God honoring. It's a way for you to have some give and take, right? And make their faith and their theology tangible and practical. It's not just this head knowledge, but it's, it's life knowledge, Talking with them about their faith as a way to make, a, make it a lifestyle rather than just a religious activity that they must do. So make a point to regularly talk with your child about faith. Make sure that they're reading the word. Pray together. Preach to them the gospel. All right? And lead by example. If you'll do those things, they will, you, they will be well on their way uh, to, to growing to be able to finally, when they get old enough, to make that decision based on a solid life experience and a solid foundation. But there's one last thing, and that is, you just need to decide and commit that your children will be raised in the church. Because your children, like you, need the church. They need fellowship. They need the corporate worship. They need to have a pastor in their life who is responsible to feed their souls. They need the church. The church, as Paul says, is the pillar and the grounds of truth. The church is where you and your children learn foundational orthodox doctrines that you both need to know in order to grow to spiritual maturity. The church is the hub of God's missional and discipling work for the world. Your children like you, need the church. And so you need to be committed to helping them to make that a part of their life. And I know that there are going to be times that there's going to be pushback here. There's going to be times that I just want to sleep in. I just want to play travel ball. I just want to go hang out with my friends. But, but, but that is not the thing for them to be able to decide. That is the decision you need to make. They need to grow up in a church, which means they need to be here regularly, Right? They need to be included in age-appropriate studies like youth groups. They need to be integrated into the family of God, learning to do life with other believers, learning to share other people's burdens, learning to edify one another, learning to serve each other, learning to live as a part of a body of Christ. And, and, and this, is, is, this too is, is not something that you, you, get, you get to let them have a choice in. We don't let them choose whether or not they want to go to school. Like, parents just don't do that. So why would we let them choose whether or not they want to become part of the, the family of faith? Something that actually has to do with their eternity. Your children need to be raised in the church. Now, we've covered all that. What do we do with this? Well, the truth is, we just need to acknowledge that ultimately your children, they will make this decision for themselves. They will choose whether to have faith or not. All that you do will ultimately come down to their choice, which means they will, by default, choose salvation or condemnation. At some point in their lives, they will choose faith or not faith. Salvation or condemnation, they will choose heaven or hell. And they will make this choice for themselves. Some of us will rejoice in their decision. Some of us will, will not which means there's going to come a point that it's really out of your hands. Your children will grow up and they will make this choice. And you will certainly continue to have influence in their life, but your influence is nothing like it was when they were kids. So what do we, what do, we do with that knowledge? Well, I think that, that there are lots of ways to apply this because not everybody's a parent. But I think the application really begins with making a commitment. That in light of what we have learned, I think that we need to make a commitment. And the commitment is to make disciples in the sphere of our influence. Which means if you're a parent with small children, you do everything in your power to make sure they grow up in the faith. If you're a parent with adult children, you need to commit yourself to being a visible role model of, of the goodness of God and His grace all the time. And if you're a brother or a sister, then you need to influence your siblings for Christ. Or you need, to, you need to influence your fellow students. Right? Or you need to influence your grandchildren. Because grandparents have a lot of influence with, with kids too. We need to encourage other Christians and parents also to teach their children diligently. And not to give them, their children, a choice that they really don't have any business making. Not until they're old enough, really, to make that decision. 
We as a church need to help other parents see that, guess what? Your children really don't need to make that choice right now. You need to make that choice. And so let us never, and hear me on this, let us never be bullied by the world. Let us not be backed into a corner with accusations of us trying to indoctrinate our children. We must always remember we cannot give up our right to influence our children because if we will not teach them, the world will. As John Flavel once wrote, if you neglect to instruct your children in the ways of holiness, will the devil neglect to instruct them in the ways of wickedness? No. If you will not teach them to pray, he will the curse, swear, and lie. If the ground be uncultivated, weeds will spring. Let us always be willing to till the soil of our children's heart with the truth and plant the seeds of God's word. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for that admonition, Lord. And I thank you, Lord, that in my own personal life, you've helped me overcome that. Because I've been somebody in my own life where I've really not wanted, especially early on in my faith, to be too overbearing to my children when it comes to matters of faith. I have have allowed them to have too many choices at different points in their life, and I realize it's a mistake. That, Lord, my job is to love them unconditionally and to tell them the truth and to help them to see the goodness of your grace and to know that the world is competing for them and that someday that they will make a decision, and ultimately that's going to be between them and you, and I will have nothing else to do with it. But while my children are in my care, I must make every attempt always to let my kids see your goodness, and to walk in faith and to give them a robust education when it comes to who you are, which means we pray together, which means we go to church together, which means we talk about the gospel all the time, which means that dad has to like, you know, grow up and live his faith and be the example. I pray, Father God, that you would just continue to impress this into my hearts and our hearts as a church family and a community. That, Father, Lord, yes, we will probably be a little overprotective of our kids, but let us be really overprotective in this area. Let us make sure that we do everything we can to equip our children to be able to make this decision because the world is coming after them. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just give us strength and wisdom and discernment. And again, not to be overbearing parents, but loving ministers of the gospel, leading with grace, walking in mercy, and certainly sharing in forgiveness. And I pray, Father, that you just inspire us all to live this out. And I pray, Father, that you would raise up a people in this little church and this little congregation, a people who are, are, are zealous for your name, who are willing to stir up revival in this community. And I'm praying, Lord God, that you'd help us to tear down the strongholds that are in the way. And I pray that, Father, you'd protect and bless everyone here. There's been a lot of loss of those in our church, and I pray that you'd heal their hearts and you'd minister to them and draw them close. And that, Lord, that you would help them to just sovereignly hold on to the hope that you have Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.